Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Welcome to the second week of a series on Lamentations. Um, this may be the first time uh, in your church attendance history that a church has done a series on Lamentations. If it's not, uh, I applaud the church that tried to tackle that. But we're seeking to uh, take these poems of lament and try to understand how they can inform uh, our faith. And what we're discovering is that this book of lament poems actually has a lot to teach us about what it means to be people of faith through the whole of human experience. Uh, and so the book is organized into five different chapters or five different poems. So each different chapter is a different uh, and separate lament poem. And last week we took some time just to kind of orient ourselves to the book as a whole. Uh, we learned about the purpose and the value of the practice of lament. Uh, and that's going to be some really important information and, uh, and helpful information as we go throughout this series. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back and uh, listen to it so that we kind of have that foundation. Uh, and we don't have to try to build that foundation every week as we go on. Uh, but what we learned is that in the first poem, the city of Jerusalem is personified as a widow after the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem and uh, the Hebrew people were taken into exile into Babylon. So that's kind of where we're at in Israel's history. Uh, the Babylonian army came in and for about a year and a half uh, took siege over the city of Jerusalem, leaving it basically in crumbles and having a huge majority or huge portion of its inhabitants shipped off in exile to Babylon. And so these lament poems are not just kind of there because God thought it might be a good idea to include that in the scriptures. They're there because they're rooted and grounded in real history among a real people uh, who were going through real suffering. And the widow, though, in the first poem, feels that her suffering is deserved because of the ways that she had sinned against God. And so she, she will say uh, that God is right in doing this and bringing this about. But we also looked at this kind of the other side of the coin, which is the widow feels shame from that sin. That there's, uh, there's this kind of this guilt that comes from sin, but there's also a shame. And what we learned last week is that God intends to release us from the guilt of personal sin through forgiveness, but also rescue us from the shame of sin. That God's redemptive purposes covers kind of both sides of that sin uh, problem or that sin equation. And so that's the first poem. Uh, the second poem we're going to try to tackle uh, here, and I, I read the first poem in its entirety uh, last week, but this week I just want to read uh, the first few verses, uh, verses 1 through 9 of Lamentations chapter 2, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. And uh, let me warn you, uh, this is some heavy stuff, right? But we are in Lamentations, so uh, let's, let's take a look. Uh, verse 1, the Lord in his anger has cast a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities now lies in the dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. In his great day of anger, the Lord has shown no mercy even to his temple. 
Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them down to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers. All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. He bends his bow against his own people as though he were their enemy. His strength is used against them to kill their finest youth. His fury is poured out like fire on beautiful Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord has vanquished Israel like an enemy, destroyed her palaces and her fortresses. He has brought unending sorrow and tears upon beautiful Jerusalem. He has broken down his temple as though it were merely a garden shelter. The Lord has blotted out all memory of the holy festivals and Sabbath days. Kings and priests fall together before his fierce anger. The Lord has rejected his own altar. He despises his own sanctuary. He has given Jerusalem's palaces to her enemies. They shout in the Lord's temple as though it were a day of celebration for the Lord was determined to destroy the walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He made careful plans for their destruction. Then he did what he had planned. Therefore, the ramparts and walls have fallen down before him. Jerusalem's gates have sunk into the ground. He has smashed their locks and bars. Her kings and princes have been exiled to distant lands. Her law has ceased to exist. Her prophets received no more visions from the Lord. Whoa. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's harder to say today, isn't it? Thanks be to God. Um, There are passages like this in the scriptures, and it is our tendency, isn't it, to just kind of gloss over. And yet, uh, it's part of God's word to us, and so we try to seek to understand. It occurs to me that in the first poem, while the widow saw her sin as kind of a primary cause for the suffering uh, that the city of Jerusalem was enduring, in the second poem, uh, the author, the poet, makes God the primary actor. In this poem, God is portrayed as angry, retributive, and clearly to blame for the suffering of Jerusalem. There is no way around it. The, the, the heaviness of what we read just continues on for another 11 verses. And so how are we to understand passages like this in the scriptures? Um, or, or maybe a better question is, what are we supposed to do with passages like this? Uh, there's some questions that immediately come to my mind. Um, Are we to take our cues about the character of God and who God is from passages like this? Uh, Are we to understand that God is actually angry and retributive as portrayed in this passage of Scripture? Does, in fact, God punish us for our sins just to kind of teach us a lesson or put us back in our place? These are, these are actually really important interpretive questions. In, in other words, when we come to passages like this, we have to try to say, what is, what is the poet trying to say? And why is this passage included as part of God's word to us? So these are important interpretive questions. And, and, and maybe one of the key questions then is, how do these passages kind of line up or square with 
how other passages speak of God's love, of God's patience, of God's mercy and forgiveness. And perhaps one of the key questions uh, or one of the answers that I've often heard is the sort of all of these things are encompassing of who God is, right? So God uh, is loving, patient, forgiving, and merciful up into a certain point. But if you cross that line, then God becomes angry, retributive, and uh, seeks to put out punishment. But let's be careful. The Bible can be used in all sorts of ways. The Bible can actually be used to affirm uh, basically or almost any message in the world. You could, you could come up with any kind of truth platitude and, and attach a Bible verse to it without really hardly any trouble at all. And so the Bible is this ancient book that needs to be interpreted. And therefore we need sort of this interpretive center. We need this lens through which we can view and see the scriptures, God's words to us. And what's interesting is that I would contend to you this morning and present to you an idea that what God's words to us does is point us to the word of God. In other words, the scriptures faithfully point us to Christ as the interpretive center to help us make sense of this. The Bible, again, itself points to Jesus as this interpretive center for understanding uh, passages in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one who reveals the character and the nature of God to us. So when we read passages like this in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but particularly in the Old Testament, we need to read them in light of Christ. We read them having the knowledge of the full revelation of who God is in Christ. Then we go back and read it through that lens. And so we need to Read knowing that Christ reveals God to us. And what Jesus shows us is that God's core essence is one of self-sacrificial love. And so Jesus shows us that God is in fact not angry and not retributive. But maybe you're with me. Maybe you have some questions about that. But let's say you're 100% with me. Yes and amen. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. Then what in the world do you do with passages like this? And how are we to understand them? Are they just like, oh, let's just set them aside? Or do they still have something to offer us in our life of faith? As I mentioned last week, but I want to mention it again, Lamentations is interesting. As are the lament poems in the book of Psalms. Uh, because Lamentations isn't the only place in the scriptures to find uh, poems of lament. Um, but what's interesting is that in these poems, it is the people speaking to God, and then that churned around becoming part of God's word back to us. You see, usually, usually God is speaking to people in the scriptures. What we have is sort of this, 
this narrative flow, right? Like you read the Gospels, it reads like a story, like this narrative. You get to the book of Acts, and that is totally a narrative, telling the story of the beginnings of the church and the people of God and how they were working out faith in light of Christ. And it's this really exciting kind of narrative. You could almost create a, a, a movie script out of it, right? Uh, but then you have these parts of Scripture where God is speaking to us, and it kind of takes on less of a narrative flow and you realize that this is God speaking to people. Uh, much like we have in the prophets, uh, when God speaks to people through the prophet. But in these lament poems, it's the people speaking and crying out to God in the midst of their suffering. But then in the wisdom of God, God said, I want to include the people's word to God as God's word to the people. And so this still has something to offer us. And here's what I think it shows us. And, and I so, so appreciate Grace's ability to take complex ideas and truths and communicate them in a way that children can understand. Um, adults don't check out during the kids' lesson, right? Because there is so much to, that is offered to us when things are spoken with such simplicity. But part of what this poem shows us is that to express anger toward God or to express anger at God is not blasphemous or unfitting for prayer. It's not blasphemous or unfitting for prayer for us to express anger toward God or anger at God. In fact, it shows us that anger in times of suffering can actually be a sign of fidelity to God. Did you hear me? Anger in time, expressing anger to God in times of suffering can actually be a sign of fidelity to God. Being angry with God shows that we are not willing to let God go. You with me? In other words, if you are angry with someone, you are engaging with them in relationship. It's when you lose that anger and you become indifferent that we are at danger of losing faith. And sometimes what will happen is people will have, like things will be going swimmingly. <laughs> I love that word. Things will be going swimmingly. Things are going great. God is faithful. God is good. Enter a time of suffering. We have no language for how to lament. We have no language for how to be angry at God. So first we're angry, but we don't know what to do with that. We don't know how to have a language of faith in the midst of that suffering or in the midst of that anger. And so that anger turns into indifference. And when that turns to indifference, then we are at danger of losing faith. And so this, this poem of lament shows us that, there, that part of our relationship or fidelity to God is actually to engage in God in, in the midst of suffering through lament because that shows that we have not let go of God. This, this sort of engagement with God shows us that nothing in life is outside of God's attention. Nothing in life is outside of God's attention. There is no chaos, there is no atrocity, no sinfulness, no trauma that cuts us off from God. In fact, to be, I want you to hear this, to be angry with God and to lament 
is to have faith that God is a God of justice and will act to make things right and bring redemption to that situation. Okay? I want to say that again, and then I just want to let us sit, sit with it for a moment. So can we do like maybe 10 seconds of awkward silence because I just want this to hang. Okay? So let me say it again. To lament is to have faith that God will act to make things right. To lament is to have faith that God will act to make things right. There is no use in naming what is wrong in lament if we don't believe that God will move to make it right. You with me? And so this chapter, but really this whole book, brings the pain of trauma out into the open. Losing, like, so put yourself, we did this a little bit last week, but put yourself in the shoes of the Israelite people living in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of life. It's the land that God had promised you. You had kings build temples there, and it is now the absolute center of your worshiping life and your social life and your economic life. Like Jerusalem is the center of all these parts. And then that thing, that city, that center now sits in shambles. And you are exiled out of the land. This is nothing short of trauma. This is nothing short of of losing a sense of identity and security and comfort and all the things that come from having a home, a place to call home. And that's utterly lost here. And what this, this sort of like poem that says, Yahweh did this and this is how it feels, brings trauma out into the open. And this poem bears witness to struggle and provides resonance with those who are suffering. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a, se- in a season of intense difficulty, suffering, and you go to church and it's hoo-ha songs and upbeat stuff and, and this like pastor in skinny jeans and all this kind of stuff and there is no resonance with you, Right? Now, there's a time and a place for who are not skinny jeans, at least not on me. And, and like there's a time and a place for all of that, right? And that's good. And we are to be people of celebration and joy and hope and resurrection people. Yes and amen. But there has to be space for an expression of faith in the midst of suffering. In the midst of everything is not okay. And... Lent, first of all, helps us do that, right? Like there's kind of 40 days built into the church calendar for us to just admit that out loud. Um, and we kind of lean into those practices. But, but even in the times when we are like reading scriptures, we can turn to these things and give resonance to suffering. So in this way, it's, it's mere presence in the scriptures helps to create space for healing. Right? Like the mere presence of lament poems in the scriptures, in this, in this book, this holy book that we call authoritative in our lives, says there is room and there is space for my suffering and there is redemption in the midst of it. 
That's the good news. So the Bible, in other words, <laughs> this, this is going to be so good. I can't, I can't wait. The, the Bible is not a book that reflects perfect life and tidy doctrine. The Bible is a book that reflects the grittiness of life. If we are turning to the scriptures for like just this kind of neat, perfect life, tidy doctrine, everything is as it says it is, all of that, you will be disappointed because this book reflects the grittiness of our own lives. And I don't know about you, but I take incredible comfort from that. I take incredible comfort in the fact that we serve a God who has provided us scriptures that will point us to Christ, but those scriptures re- like represent and reflect the human experience as I experience it, which is lots of highs, lots of lows, and a whole bunch in between. <laughs> and I want us to take comfort in that. And so there's, there's this kind of truth, how, how the mere presence of these poems gives voice to, to suffering, provides space for trauma, and then insert the good news of Jesus into that, that there is redemption available and healing available to us. But there is something else out of chapter 2 that I want to spend some time on this morning. So this is two sermons for the price of one today. I tried to come up with some clean transition, some way to connect these ideas. They're not connected, they're both, but they're both present in this, in this chapter. So here's, here's the second sermon. The language in Lamentations chapter 2 shows us a bit about how Jerusalem saw itself. And that they really saw themselves as special, as protected. Uh, I, I, there's, there's kind of underlying these poems of lament, there is this kind of exasperated, I never, ever thought this could happen to us kind of feeling. Uh, In fact, just look at the first couple of verses. Uh, In verse 1, it says, Jerusalem has been thrown down from the heights of heaven. And then in verse 3, all the strength of Israel has vanished. And, And listen to me, you don't talk about being thrown down from heaven or losing strength if you didn't first see yourself as heavenly and strong. Okay? And so Jerusalem saw itself as exceptional. Who, and really, who could blame them? Who could blame them? Uh, They were a nation chosen by God to carry the message of hope and salvation to the world, that through them the whole world would be blessed thinking then that their status would protect them from any harm, and yet they found themselves experiencing unimaginable loss, even the destruction of the temple. Did you catch that line in there, that God has destroyed the temple as though it were a garden shed? In other words, words, saying, giving Yahweh, giving God, saying God destroyed His building, showing it no respect in the process just tearing it down as though it was this simple garden shed that didn't have any real structure or importance to it. Their whole lives uprooted. I want to make an observation this morning. 
And I want to do this as gently and as pastorally as I can. But the observation is that the American evangelical church has been caught in a narrative of exceptionalism. We, and we are part of the evangelical tradition as a church of the Nazarene, we have come to believe that we are sort of the standard bearers for what it means to be Christian in the world. And now I'm making blatant statements, and of course this isn't true for every person in the evangelical tradition or every church in the evangelical tradition, but as a whole, the American evangelical church has been caught up in a narrative of exceptionalism and come to see that American evangelicalism is the standard bearer for what it means to be Christian. Uh, Consider for a moment the industry that has been birthed by evangelicals, and that is the church growth industry. The industry is filled with narratives of success and victory and uh, kits that you can buy and then apply to grow your church double the size in the next year. Like the marketing sort of makes all sorts of promises. And I know, and I may sound a little cynical because as a pastor in this industry, the messages are very clear. The message is if you don't fit this narrative of success and victory, you aren't doing it right. But this industry filled with narratives of success and victory, elevating pastors of big churches to celebrity status, and then placing these pastors, and let's just be honest for a moment, predominantly white males, placing these pastors as thought leaders for the entire church, the capital C church, and then setting up their congregations as examples of faithfulness. And there are, of course, pastors with celebrity status that are wise and big congregations that are faithful. I don't want you to mishear me this morning. But I get nervous. I get nervous with narratives of success from our brand of Christianity and running the risk of considering evangelicalism over and above other forms of Christianity. Where we might say, for example, fail to embrace the examples of Spanish-speaking churches in the Dominican Republic, that meet in 500-square-foot cinder-block buildings who are faithfully living out the truth and the beauty of the gospel. But they don't fit the narrative, and so we might ignore them. Or we we run the risk of ignoring Korean-American immigrants who meet at 5 a.m. to pray before heading to a 12-hour workday, and we simply cast them aside because they don't speak English or it's broken with an accent. Exceptionalism is believing that you've got it right and set the standard while everyone else has it wrong and is substandard. And here's my guess. This is probably rubbing a lot of us the wrong way because we would never say it so explicitly, but the underpinnings are there. Sung Chan Ra writes this in his book called Prophetic Lament. Quote, Non-Western expressions of Christianity can be portrayed as inferior to the successful formula for ministry put forth by many white evangelicals in mainstream Christian culture, end quote. Non-Western expressions of Christianity can be portrayed as inferior when set up against 
the sort of ideal, ideal of American evangelicalism. Now, let me be clear, too. I think evangelical is good, being evangelical. And evangelical faith is good. At its root, the desire to have a life so beautiful and a message so magnificent that others are attracted to it, this is a good and biblical and necessary idea. But for many American evangelicals, it isn't just evangelical faith that is exceptional. It's the Americanized version of it. And in some cases, even confusing faithfulness to God with allegiance to nation or assuming ideals of a nation and the ideals of a, of a faith, of our faith, are one and the same. And this is not the case. And so here's what I'm saying. Here's why I bring this up out of Lamentations chapter 2. I'm not just like have, looking for opportunities to climb on a soapbox. Here's why I'm bringing this up out of Lamentations 2. Jerusalem saw themselves as exceptional. I see a lot of that in where our own faith tradition and in this midst of this poem of lament. Here's what I think. I think lament helps keep us from attitudes of exceptionalism because lament requires humility. If you, are not, if you do not have humility, you will find yourself incapable of lament. This, this, this posture of humility is required to enter into lament and name the things that are wrong and name the things that I have done wrong. How I have participated in these systems that haven't been helpful and all of these kinds of things. And so may we, who might be tempted to think of ourselves as exceptional by all standards, Learn to see ourselves simply as recipients of God's grace. Amen? May we just be willing to see ourselves as recipients of God's grace. And then may we not lose sight that the, that the God that we serve and the Christianity that we practice is part of a great, grand tradition that has been received. You are a Christian today. Because someone passed the faith on to you. And you are, perhaps if you've been Nazarene your whole life, that was because it was passed on to you. If you are just new to the Nazarene church, and, and if, you don't, if you're here this morning and you don't even know what the Nazarene church is, all of this is, has been passed on. And we can learn about these traditions and these tribes and all of these things. And, and I don't think this is all inherently bad. I don't think that denominations are inherently bad. I think there's lots of good things about denominations in terms of polity and accountability and ways of structuring and all these kinds of things. These are good things, but let's not forget that we are part of a tradition called Christianity. And it is a great and grand tradition. It has a multitude of expressions all around the world and across time. And so there's nothing wrong with knowing and celebrating the particularities of your tribe. But may we be protected from exceptionalism. And may we be protected from it through the practice of lament. Because lament requires humility. Are you with me this morning? Well... I am reminded here at the end of the message that in the call to worship this morning, our, our friend Bobby led us 
and reminded us in our call to worship that we join with Christians across geography and across time. And, and we say that not to be weird, but as a way of pointing us to the reality that when we do this thing called worship, and whether for a season it's at home, and we spent a lot of the past year worshiping at home, and we're so thrilled to be back together in the sanctuary. But wherever we gather and however we gather, we gather as part of this great tradition that went before us, it will go after us, and we are stewards of it. May we steward it well. Amen? Amen. Well, there is the two sermons for the price of one. <laughs> I want to invite us, uh, well, let me, pray, let me say a word of prayer for us, and then I'll, I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ. We read the words, the laments of our ancient brothers and sisters, and we recognize that they did not have the light and understanding of Christ that we do. And so God, we celebrate we, and we recognize today uh, the beauty of your character revealed in Christ. That through Christ and the self-sacrificial love revealed on the cross, we can see that God, you are a God of love, of mercy and forgiveness. That you have refounded the world on an axis of love practiced through forgiveness rather than the world, and we still see evidence of this, kind of being run on the axis of revenge through the threat or practice of violence. And so God, today we endeavor to be faithful to the message and revelation of who you are in Christ. And God, we don't want to think too highly of ourselves, but rather see ourselves as recipients of your grace. And so Lord, may we um, be faithful. May we have humility and may we practice lament, which is just to name the things that are wrong in the world and the ways in which we have participated in those wrongs, but not just for the purpose of naming it and bringing it out in the open, but for the purpose of allowing and inviting the healing grace of God into those spaces. And so today, Lord, for whatever we are lamenting in our lives, I pray that your Holy Spirit would find your way into each of those spaces and do your work of healing and redemption. And so God be with us, especially as we gather around the Lord's table today. Um, may we sense and feel your presence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.